John chapter 6, verse 22 here in just a moment. But let's start with a question that's going to help us make sense of what we're going to read this morning. Why do I seek Jesus? Why am I here? Why do I call myself a follower of Jesus Christ? Why maybe am I interested in following Jesus Christ? Why do I seek Jesus? Why do I want to know him? Now, that's a slightly different question than why should I seek Jesus? What's going on inside of this heart, in this mind, in this life that causes me to seek after Jesus Christ? What do I think are the best reasons for believing in Jesus, for following him, and will those reasons endure the test of time? We have another conversation this morning that Jesus steers in the direction of the motivations of those who ask the questions. We've had a couple of these kind of conversations so far, Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus eventually presses into Nicodemus in his heart and mind and what he needs to do. The woman at the well, she thinks Jesus is asking one question, he's asking another. So he presses in to her heart and mind and life to draw her close to him. And now we have something very similar with a crowd of people. Jesus has this tendency to get very real with people really fast. And he's going to ask a question about one thing in a conversation that ends up dealing with the condition of the hearts and minds of those involved in the conversation. In our passage, a large crowd has followed Jesus along the Sea of Galilee to see more miracles. They were fed by him the day before. Will he do it again? So the crowd thinks they're asking a question about one thing, but Jesus knows that what they need is actually something else. So as we listen to Jesus talk, we're listening to Jesus talk to us this morning. These are some of the things that are going to help us make sense of this passage of Scripture. It is just the case that Jesus wants to know why we seek him. This conversation is actually broken up into three questions or sets of questions, and Jesus answers each of those. And in response to their first question to him, what Jesus does is he lays bare their motivation for seeking after him. So Jesus wants to know why we seek him. And then Jesus is going to explain the work of God. And I want us to spend a couple of minutes on that this morning to make sense of that. When he talks about this is the work of God and we should work for food that endures, what does he mean by that? The life of following Jesus Christ, it is work, and we are asked to pour effort and time into it. It is the work that the Holy Spirit does within us, and it is work that we do, things that we pay attention to, things that we do. So Jesus is going to explain the work of God. And then as the conversation unfolds, we recognize that Jesus is going to respond to a demand. The crowd is going to make a demand of Jesus. They're, they sort of discover partway through this conversation that they're not getting what they thought they were going to get. They were thought they had come to Jesus for one thing. He may not do that. So they actually turn on him a little bit and they make a demand of him. And they actually demand that Jesus does something for them. Turns out, though, that he is what they want. He is what they need. They just don't see it yet. So let's watch this conversation unfold. We'll begin reading in John chapter 6, 
beginning in verse 22. It goes like this. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. On the next day, so this is important, on the next day, the previous day was the first story in John chapter 6, and that was the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children. This is the crowd that saw this incredible miracle. This is the crowd that was fed by Jesus Christ. At least some significant portion of this large group of people now make their way across another portion of the Sea of Galilee to find Jesus Christ. So they make this effort to find Jesus. What are they seeking? What are they looking for? If you and I have not read the Gospel of John before, if we just don't know how this story unfolds, and we've been reading through this Gospel so far, and we kind of like this Jesus guy. He does really interesting things with people, and he seems to have something to offer that nobody else does. And he reaches into lives of, of really fascinating and, and powerful people, and then people who are neglected. We like this Jesus. He's gathering disciples around, and we get to this story, this amazing miracle. The crowd puts an effort to finding Jesus. They get on boats. They sail to the next port in Capernaum. We're beginning to think, hey, this Jesus is finally getting the crowd he deserves. He's finally getting the attention he deserves. He has a few disciples, but now finally he's getting traction. Maybe now the megachurch will be built. Maybe now the book tour will begin. Jesus finally has this group around him. Has Jesus' miracle made the crowd disciples? Has it made them followers of Jesus Christ yet? Now, again, as if we haven't read this before and don't know the answer to that question, we're thinking maybe the crowd has come to follow Jesus Christ. So what is Jesus going to do now when this crowd of people shows up? So let's go to verse 25. They find him, and they start a conversation. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For in him God the Father has set his seal." Rabbi, when did you get here? Teacher, when did you get here? Remember the previous part of the, 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 the passage told us they woke up in the morning. They knew there was one boat. The disciples got on the boat. Jesus went another way. So the disciples went off to Capernaum. They don't know what Jesus, you know. So the disciples are on the boat in the middle of the night in a storm. Jesus takes a stroll. He meets them in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And they all make their way to Capernaum. So the crowd is here seeking Jesus Christ. When did you get here? Jesus doesn't answer about seven in the morning. <laughs> he turns around and he begins to talk to the crowd. 
And he begins to talk about what's going on in their hearts and minds, why they have shown up, why they have come after Jesus Christ. Their question about when he got there to Capernaum turns into Jesus talking about their motives. He presses them about why did you take this effort to come and find me? The very fact that a crowd shows up is not enough for Jesus. He wants to know more. He wants to know why are you here? In fact, Jesus wants to reveal to them, to you, to me, what is really going on inside of this heart and mine. If Christ were to press this question upon you this morning, how would he phrase it? What would he ask? Why are you here? Why are you seeking me? You put effort into getting here this morning. Those of you with little kids put a lot of effort into getting here this morning. And Jesus wants to ask the question, why are you here? Maybe you think you're seeking one thing, and Jesus says, well, before we get there, there's something else we have to ask. There's something else we need to get to. There's something else we need to to deal with. So he tells this crowd, and it's an interesting thing to tell this crowd, you did not make the effort to come and find me because of the signs that you saw, but you ate food, your stomachs were filled, and you want to do it again. So this is a curious thing for Jesus to say because at first it feels a little backwards. The sign that Jesus showed them the previous day is he multiplies the loaves and the fishes. It is a genuine miracle and he does it and feeds them and fills their bellies. It's the sign that Jesus gives them is this miracle. But then Jesus says, you didn't come here for the sign. You came here for more food. Now, remember in the Gospel of John that a sign is not just the miracle. It's not just the thing. A sign is something that Jesus does or teaches that points to him and who he is, that points to the truth of Jesus, that points to the need to believe in Jesus Christ. It's not about the bread. It's about the one who multiplied the bread. Signs are always designed to point us to him. If we stop at the sign, we haven't gotten there. We need to make our way all the way to Jesus Christ. The New Living Translation takes that same phrase and puts it like this. I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. Most Sunday mornings, We put out a bunch of signs in the neighborhood so that as you're making your way into the neighborhood, you see a couple signs, you know which way to get to Living Hope Church. I've had people who have actually attended here for weeks at a time stop showing up, and when I finally talk to them, they say, it's because I just don't even know how to get to your church. So we put out signs. If you get to the first sign and you stop there, have you gotten a church? You've stopped at the sign. You haven't understood what the sign is for. Is to say, turn right here, turn left here. If you stop at the bread, you've missed it. So this is important for us. When the miraculous happens, when the spectacular happens, when something happens that only Jesus can can do, do we see the miracle or are we amazed by the miracle worker? 
Do we just see the miracle? Do we just see what is spectacular? Or do we become amazed by the miracle worker himself? Their mistake is the same mistake that we make so often. Just as the case, it's inside of our hearts and minds. We seek the spectacular. We seek the emotional high. We seek the good feels. We are drawn by hype. We are drawn to crowds. And crowds make us think this many people just can't be wrong. Crowds make us think that. Physical crowds make us think this many people can't be wrong. Social media crowds make us think that. Well, just about everybody is saying the same thing, posting the same stuff. This many people can't be wrong. We make that same mistake in our own hearts and minds. So Jesus presses on it, and he reveals it to them. Now, this crowd at this point, they still have their chance. You see, the revelation of their motives, when Jesus actually digs past the surface... And he wants to know why they're there. They're asking, how did you get here? He wants to know, why are you here? When Jesus does that kind of thing, it's not to push the crowd back out into the lake. It's to pull them in closer to him. Every time the Holy Spirit does that work inside of our hearts and minds, that is conviction, that is change, that is direction, impresses upon us in ways that feel uncomfortable or we don't naturally like, it's not to push us away from Jesus Christ, but to pull us closer and closer to him. They have one foot in those boats, they have one foot on shore, and Jesus is trying to pull them into the land. I need you here with me, I want you to follow me. We need to know what's going on inside of your own hearts and minds at the same time. So as Jesus presses upon their motives, why they're seeking Jesus, he goes on to say this in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man... So even though that phrase, Son of Man, makes us think of, you know, Jesus as a human being, it's a phrase that reaches into this fascinating passage in Daniel 7 in the Old Testament, and it's about the conquering king. That's what Son of Man refers to. The Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So this is typical of Jesus inside of these conversations. He takes the vocabulary of the moment. He takes what's on the minds of people. They've got food on the brain. So he says, here, so he says this, we're going to learn how to work for the things that endure, not just working for the food that fills our belly day after day after day. And he takes all of that and turns it into a description of who he really is. They work for food every single day of their lives. They worked to get across that sea to find Jesus and get fed again. And this is the typical experience of human life. We get up every morning and we work for our food and we work for our shelter and we work for our clothing and we work for on and on and on and on. This is what we do. These aren't bad things. Jesus isn't complaining about that kind of work. But the question now is, are we ready to work for the things of Christ now? We're ready to work for the things that fill our bellies. Are we ready to work for the things that, in, that we receive when we believe in that life that Christ gives us? To find the life desires, you're putting on a different life, and you're putting to death an old one. 
So with all of that that we have been given, and this inexpressible set of gifts that we've been given by God, what does Peter want us to do? For this very reason, make every effort to supplement, to add to your trust in Jesus Christ. Supplement your faith with virtue. This is the skill of that life, the character of that life. And virtue with knowledge, if God has given this to us through the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, then know Jesus more. Jesus Christ, then know Jesus more. And virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. My goodness, how different would this world be if there was more self-control? And self-control with steadfastness, with endurance through this life, and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. You've been given some things that I don't even know how to express, Peter says. It's in your hands now, follower of Jesus Christ. So now here's the job. Set your mind on things above. Make every effort to make use of this life and turn it into what God has given you. And I think in so many ways, Peter captures that dynamic that Jesus gives to the crowd. Because of all that is given to us in Jesus Christ, We now work hard to take the gifts he has given and turn them into the lives that we now lead as followers of Jesus. We know what it means to work for the bread that perishes. Do we now know what it means to work for the bread that endures to eternal life? Well, Jesus continues with the crowd in this conversation to talk about this work and what this means. So when the crowd hears that that word, that concept, they then turn that back on Jesus and they say, well, what do you mean? What kind of work do we need to do? And Jesus continues in this conversation. So verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the crowd has been taught in their religious and cultural world, they have been taught that obedience to the law of Moses is how you find right relationship with God, that this is how you find acceptance with God. So here comes this rabbi, this Jesus, who some think might actually be the Christ, the Messiah. Well, what work should we do to be doing the works of God? Yeah, that question is loaded with this doing language. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? So Jesus throws a wrench into that process. He says, here's what you do. You believe. Now, we need to make sure we understand how Jesus talks about this so that we get it in the right order instead of the wrong order. He says, here's the work of God. It is to believe. Jesus wants the crowd to hear this one thing and this one thing that actually changes life, to put their trust in him. That's where it starts, to put their trust in him. So Jesus is trying to move them from the meal that they've come for to the life that they need, from the miracle that they're seeking, the spectacular thing they're looking for, to life itself. He's trying to move them from one to the other. 
So we need to understand it like this so that we understand the way Jesus speaks about the work of God. Belief in Jesus Christ is the beginning of the brand new life. Belief in Jesus Christ, trusting in him with our lives. That's the beginning of this brand new life. But that belief then presses us closer and closer into Jesus Christ. We want to move further and further into him. It begins with belief, and then we work to grow in this life with Jesus Christ. Here's a wonderful way, a kind of nutshell version of understanding how this works. The world says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Our, our natural instinct in relationship, in religion, in whatever the case may be, is that first instinct. In order to be accepted, I have to do certain things. I have to act a certain way. I have to say certain things. I have to do it over and over. I have to do it long enough to be accepted by, and then finally I'm accepted by whatever, whomever, by God. The gospel says something else completely different is going on here. You are accepted. Believe in Jesus Christ. And then obedience follows, and it follows out of love. It follows out of the, the desire to get to know Jesus more and more. The taste that we have of his life makes us want to have the feast that is his life. Does that make sense? I am accepted. Now I learn to obey. So Jesus is pressing upon this crowd why they have taken this effort to find him. They want food. He knows it. So he begins to talk about the food that, that endures to eternal life. And we work for that kind of food. Well, what do you mean by work? And now we get to this point where I think the crowd has sort of decided, I don't think we're going to get what we came to get. So they ask another question of Jesus. Verse 30. So they said to him, well then, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to, him, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread all the time. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's a powerful little moment there. What Jesus has done with sort of this question and answer moment is he presses upon their motives, their hearts and minds. He brings them to the point where they actually, they say something that's close to true. Give us this true bread and give it to us always, all the time. And Jesus says, here I am. It's me. I am the bread of life. It's a powerful moment. But listen to what the crowd does. So you're talking about the work of God. And we're supposed to believe in that one. And you think it's you. So what sign are you going to do? What miracle will you perform? 
that will cause us to go ahead and believe in you? Now, that's quite the question coming from a crowd that was just fed by him the day before. How does that happen? It forces us to ask this question. Is this kind of what we're calling miracle faith ever really satisfied? If we've made our way across the sea to find Jesus so that we can experience another miracle, is that ever going to be satisfied? If that is all that it is, are we ever going to become followers of Jesus Christ, or will we be forever demanding that he do stuff for us? These kinds of moments in these conversations bug me. And it's because we watch this happen all the time in human hearts. I demand that Jesus does stuff. I demand that Jesus does stuff. What if he doesn't? And can I just be frank with you guys? I'm in no position to demand anything of Jesus Christ. If our seeking of Jesus is really that shallow, all we are going to do is jump from spectacle to spectacle, demanding that God keeps doing more for us. And eventually, when something else that is not God makes us feel better than God made us feel last week, we're going to pick that instead of God. If our faith is based on our feelings, if our feelings, our emotions are what drive us from experience to experience to experience, then eventually something else is going to give us a better feeling, a better experience. So our emotions, our feelings, our demand that Jesus does something for us cannot be the ground of my trust in him. This is why, and I think... John chapter 6, it's a long chapter. It's a long conversation, and incredible things happen in this chapter. I think fundamentally this is what's going on inside of this chapter. This is why truth matters so much. This is why realizing that Jesus Christ is the only source of not just truth, but meaning in life matters so much. I follow Jesus, and I'm talking about Phil now. I follow Jesus because I am convinced the whole thing is true. I'm convinced the whole story is true. And I've got to tell you, there are times in life and sometimes long times in life when I don't feel it. But that's okay because it's true. And it's never going to change. It's never going to change. Nothing else is true. Nothing else satisfies the human heart's search for meaning like Jesus Christ does. Our faith has to be deeper. Our trust in Jesus has to be deeper than those things. And what they do with Christ is so interesting. Their challenge to him is specific. He said, okay, Moses fed our forefathers in the desert for a long time. You fed us for one day. Why shouldn't we pick Moses over you? This is a challenge. 
So their effort to find and follow Jesus has actually turned into a demand of him and personal blindness to who he really is. And we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but let's recall something. John chapter 6 opens with that story, the feeding of the 5,000 plus men, you know, men, women, and children. We had 10, 15,000 people, this giant crowd. The chapter opens with the crowd. The crowd shows up again. It's a long chapter. By the time, that we're, by the time we get to the end of John chapter 6, we're down to 12. And the end of John chapter 6 ends with the apostle Peter saying something that I believe is one of the most powerful, powerful things spoken by a disciple in the Gospels. Everyone else has left. Jesus turns to his disciples and he said, are you going to leave too? Peter says, we can't. Nobody else has the words of life. Will you believe when the crowd goes home? Will you believe when the crowd moves in the opposite direction? Will I believe? Now listen, friends, God will. We firmly believe this. God will, in his timing, in his power, in his goodness, he will show up in incredible ways. God still heals. God still transforms. God still shows himself to us in ways that cannot be explained except God did this. God still does these things. And Jesus will continue in the Gospel of John to perform signs and wonders, but every single one of them is designed to pull people closer to him and who he is. What if our miracle faith, what if our faith as small as a mustard seed actually became a taproot sunk deep into the ground and wrapped around the bedrock of Jesus Christ. What if that's what our faith became? Demanding that Jesus does stuff for us will not get us there. Believing in him will. What if my faith became a matter of trust and truth instead of fearful demands? See, this is the kind of thing that I hear when I read the Apostle Paul in Philippians tell that little church. He says, I've learned in whatever circumstance I've found myself to be content. He writes that while he's in prison. This is what I hear when I read that. What if my faith has become about truth and trust? No matter my circumstance, it really is all true. It's the only way the Apostle Paul can say something like that in prison. So they press Jesus with Moses. You fed us one day. Let's see if you can feed us for two days, much less for a very long time. And so Jesus clarifies something. Truly, truly, amen, amen, verily, verily. In the King James Version, I said, it wasn't Moses. It was your heavenly Father that gives you actually the true bread that comes from heaven. It would have been natural for them to speak as if Moses gave them manna in the wilderness, but now Jesus is clarifying the matter. 
It wasn't really Moses. In fact, Moses knew it wasn't Moses. It was their heavenly father who gave them bread. He said, in fact, the heavenly father now is giving true bread that comes from heaven. And again, even that miracle that they think they're challenging Jesus with, that miracle is still a sign. It foreshadows what God provides us in Jesus Christ with his word, with his son, with the bread of life. So now in Jesus' words, we're talking about true bread from heaven that is given to us. When the manna in the book of Exodus came down from heaven, it fed God's people. That's a lot of people for a long time. That is an incredible moment, a sign of God's power and care and provision. But now that the true bread has come down from heaven, we're talking about bread that's given to the entire world. When the true bread comes down from heaven, it will feed, Christ says, the whole world. This bread in this passage is the eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. This bread is sent by God himself. This is the true bread from heaven that gives life to the whole world. Then we have a glimmer of hope with the crowd, probably. This sounds pretty good. Sir, give us this bread always. It just means give us this bread day after day after day. So here it is, Jesus says. He's brought them to exactly the moment he wants them. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is able to take what they are looking for, what they think they need. He's able to take what is in their hearts and minds and say, here I am. What you're looking for, what you truly need is right here in me. Believe in me, follow me, and you will be filled. And you're going to be filled over and over and over. Remember part of the story of the feeding of the 5,000, Philip, the disciple, you know, his first thought was we're never going to come up with enough money to feed all of these people. How many times did Philip go back to Jesus and he discovered every time he, could, every time he went back to Jesus, there was just more. There was more. There, there was more than enough, as a matter of fact. It's like that with Jesus. He is the bread of life. Never go hungry when we go back to him. We will never thirst. So the crowd comes with a certain set of expectations. And Jesus says, I'm not going to fulfill those expectations, but I'm going to fulfill what you truly need. The crowd waffles. They demand more miracles from Jesus. And he just simply responds. He says, I am the miracle you're looking for. Eat of me, drink of me, and you will forever be satisfied. Will we hear his answer? We asked that question early on. What if Christ confronted us this morning with, why are you here? Why are you seeking me? Will we hear his answer? I am the bread of life. Doesn't matter what else. I am the bread of life. A New Testament scholar put it like this, and I love this, and this is where we're going to end. We are all he wants, and he is all we need. Let's pray. 